Well, we're nearly there, folks. Episode 119 of The Professor and the Hack. <laughs> I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and an ecstatic uh, Professor PVO, uh, Peter Van Olsen, and joins me. <laughs> are we there yet? Well, we nearly are. Well, we're very close now. Uh, it's, you know, it's under two weeks, and to me that feels like a finish line when you have a six-week election campaign called. I'm still in PTSD from the eight-week campaign in 2016 that Malcolm Turnbull called, so um, I'm, I'm still recovering from the length of that one much less this one. Do you think it's worked for Scott Morrison? I mean, irrespective of whether he wins or loses the election, if he had his time again, do you think he would have a six-week campaign? I guess we don't necessarily know the answer until the end of this next fortnight, but do you think he'd do that or do you think he'd see a better opportunity to perhaps have called a shorter campaign to have a, a poll after a more traditional four and a half weeks? Well, what I think really surprises me is how little has worked for Scott Morrison in this campaign. Mm. Maybe if it had a shorter one and those gaffes had fallen his way early, it might have made it harder for Albanese to recover from it, you know, that, that his being sick for a week. None of that seemed to make any difference at all. I'm starting to get the feeling that the desire to, to shut your ears to Morrison is starting to happen across the country. So it doesn't really matter a great deal what he can do. Yeah. And I say that with the caveat that he remains an energised performer. He will campaign hard right to the last minute, as he did last time, in the belief that he can get there. He will not leave anything out on the field. And it's that that I think will keep Labour Party people nervous. Yeah, but, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, th I think that's exactly right. And, and if we remember 2019, with just under two weeks to go or a week and a half to go, he looked like he was going to lose. Absolutely. It's just that the polls weren't as far apart as they are this time. So just like this time, he looked like he was going to lose. Just like this time, the attitude was that he was losing momentum and puff. However, the difference is that he was within a closer striking distance last time than this time. And obviously, we know he overcame that distance and, and came over the top. So that's the real question mark for me. Can he do it a second time? Firstly, but secondly, can he do it a second time when he's coming from further behind? And I guess the third point is he's then also got those teal independents. And the fourth point, which is one of the things you were raising, Hugh, is that he's got more baggage himself, which is likely to turn voters off or, or switch off to him. And, and I guess the, the one thing I would say is this, we're almost talking about it. We're, we're not preempting it, but we are almost talking about it like there is a sense of inevitability about it. It's not a prediction, but a sense of inevitability. But we will have a really interesting post-election analysis if that's not how it turns out. If he finds a way to win, boy, there will be a level of what you might call a recalibration in political commentary, recalibration in opinion polling, won't there, Hugh? Uh, we will follow the, the course of the United States and the UK when it comes to some of these things because it's just not uh, an expected thing for him to find a way to come back given how overarching all of the things running against him are in the commentariat it would show that uh, there's a real disconnect there between the mainstream voter who decides versus the commentary. Well, I think there's no doubt about that. And I think that recalibration was forced upon everyone in 2019. I certainly don't think it's inevitable at the moment that there's going to be a Labour victory. I would put that on the record. I don't think it is inevitable. Mm. To me, some of these polling numbers seem uncertain. I think he's in trouble. There's no doubt about that. I think he's getting close to inevitable. Do you agree with this? I think it's clo the closest thing to inevitable. And I don't think it's inevitable in case this gets played back by the Prime Minister. The closest thing to inevitable is that he that he loses his majority. Yes, I think that's probably true. And then it becomes a question of where it goes from there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's have a look at uh, obviously the the big issue that is that now being debated is wages. 
and uh, whether Albanese is being a, an economic destroyer by, by aligning himself to a 5.1% pay rise. There are two things on this. There's politics and economics. Let's go with economics to start off with. He makes the point that anything less than a real wage increase is a real wage fall, and the headline inflation rate is 5.1%, so let's go for 5.1%. There's a bit more to it than that, isn't it? Because it's really the underlying inflation rate plus productivity is what is, you know, the figure to go at. And that's lower than 5.1%. Is he being a wrecker of the economy or is he aligned to what Australia needs? I think the truth is somewhere in between. And this is such an interesting debate between the economics and the politics, because to some extent, even the economics overlaps with the politics here. In a pure political sense, Scott Morrison is against the 250,000-odd people on the minimum wage, and he's against the 2.5 or so million people who are impacted by a shift in the minimum wage. That's something we can't forget, is that when the minimum wage rises, there are all sorts of other rewards that are tethered to the minimum wage, which automatically then rise as well. I've actually found Scott Morrison's rebuttal of that outcome quite minimal, probably because he doesn't want to upset 2.5 million voters. He'd rather make people think that this is just about the 250-odd thousand on the minimum wage. But that's the, the impact of it. It, it. it has that sort of kick-on effect, inevitably. Now, there is a very good political argument for Anthony Albanese that he's on the side of, of those who need the money in times of cost of living pressures, which is where this debate is centering, and he's trying to therefore look like he has an understanding and a compassion for them. Uh, so that's the political angle for him. The government's political angle is that this is perversely bad for the economy. Interest rates will stoke inflation, uh, will do damage to business uh, at a time when they're struggling in the post-pandemic environment. They're the two political arguments. Now, what's interesting about the economics is that they both have some impact on the economic purist debate as well. Uh, Yes, there is no question that if you chase inflation with wages, you can create a, I guess what you would call a, a wage price spiral. And that is what we saw in the 1970s. We saw moments of it in the 80s and the accord was designed to try to get around it so that they didn't replicate the 1970s. But it has to be a continuum for that to be the case. My point is that on the purest economic argument, the argument being run against Anthony Albanese is not against what he is doing, which I want to get to. It's against what he might do. Does this indicate that he's a bloke who is willing to risk the wage price spiral of the 1970s by always chasing inflation? Or, and this is the counter argument economically for if you're in favor of what Labor's doing, or is this a one-off? A moment in time where he recognizes that we need to be able to help people in the lowest economic quantum deal with rising inflation, where you're able to therefore give them a one-off hit so that they can handle things, rather than this being a way of life, a raison d'etre, an ethos that he has to always chase inflation with wage rises. That's the economic argument. Yeah, and I mean, I'm old enough. I started my working life in the 70s, and the wage price spiral was absolutely current. Everyone felt it in their water that inflation was going up at high levels. You wanted your wages to try to keep up. And in a sense, if Albanese is going to settle himself on the argument that that real wages cannot go backwards, which in a sense is a kind of a classic Labour Party argument, Hmm. an old-style ACTU argument, if you go back to those things. 
then that principle either holds or it doesn't hold. So when you say, when you talk about it being a one-off, if at the, and, and bear in mind, all the government is talking about doing here, because it doesn't set these wages, that Fair Work does that, they would simply be making uh, a submission, then are they always going to make a submission that no matter what uh, inflation is doing, they will stick to the principle that you can't have wages going backwards? But it's fascinating though, isn't it? Because ultimately you, you hit the nail on the head. It's only a submission. I mean, the Fair Work Commission is independent other than the appointment process, the same way that the High Court is independent other than the appointment process, and the same way that the Reserve Bank is independent other than the appointment process. So the government, whether it's a Liberal or a Labor government, they can make all the submissions in the world to Fair Work unless they're going to stack the bejesus out of it, which there are arguments both sides have done, incidentally, over the years anyway. But it's just a submission. So it's still the job of the Fair Work Commission irrespective of knowing where the government stands or doesn't stand, it's the job of the Fair Work Commission to make the Balancing Act choice on how it adjusts the minimum wage in line with what it's reading in the rest of the economy around inflation in particular, but also productivity and, and, and stresses on business. And you know, ultimately, you've then got the other check and balance. I talked about this in my Network 10 package. The other balance, of course, is the Reserve Bank. Any economist will tell you, if Fair Work was to allow what you might call rapid chasing of the inflation with wage increases, the Reserve Bank's job is to then look at that and go, okay, well, you want to keep chasing inflation with wage rises and have that spiral impact, we're putting up interest rates. I mean, they're already doing it, Hugh, but they could do it a lot quicker and a lot harder and a lot further. And that then, of course, has a flow-on impact on the economy, a flow-on impact on the politicians too, by the way. And you know that, that to me is, is why we're at the very infancy of this debate, which I think is really interesting. Eventually, eventually this debate will get real rather than just political, irrespective of which side of government wins, as to what they keep doing after this one-off situation. Because ultimately, very quickly, ultimately the Fair Work Commission will make a decision. They might recommend three or three and a half. They might go the whole hog if Labor wins and recommend five or five and a half. Whatever they do, it's their call. And we will then see how the government responds next time. We will see what impact it has on business and the inflation rate, and we'll ultimately see what the Reserve Bank then does. So these things are all very intertwined. And of course, uh, I, I suspect that, that say, a Labor government gets in, they make a submission supporting this number, they'd probably be quite grateful if the Fair Work Commission doesn't take the bait. I think that's exactly right. Because they can say, we did our bit, but uh, you know, we're, we're on your side, workers, but then quite happy not to take, as you point out, the higher interest rates that might follow as a consequence of that as a Reserve Bank chips in. Yeah. And I mean, look, at the end of the day, this sounds awful, but when you've got high inflation, like we do now, you can't solve all problems by just matching the inflation with wage rises and then say, okay, well, that's that, that's dealt with. It doesn't work that way because like it or not, when you have high inflation, one of the ways to bring it down is to keep downward pressure on wages. The debate here, though, is whether you do that everywhere, including the minimum wage, including the flow and impact on, on relatively, by and large, relatively lower socioeconomic awards, not all, but mostly. So do you do it on everything or do you just do it on the minimum wage? Where do you draw that balancing act? Well, just barely a week from an election, this is a question we can uh, reasonably ask. To the politics of Anthony Albanese running this argument, where are the votes to be won and lost? An argument can be made that the 250-odd thousand people on the minimum wage are likely to be Labour voters anyway. So there's not many new votes in it for Anthony Albanese. 
Josh Frydenberg has made the case there's 2.5, 2.7 million workers, as you've pointed out, whose wages are tethered to the minimum wage. You start to get a larger number, taking an interest in what the outcome might be. Maybe most of those are Labour voters. But if you look at what Morrison is doing and the way in which Morrison is attacking this, he's very much about small business. And in a lot of these marginal seats in the suburbs of our major cities, there is a very large small and family business voting cohort who are much more likely to be swinging voters. And this, they often come from non-English-speaking backgrounds or migrant backgrounds. It's a classic cohort which can swing either way. They're very attractive to both sides of politics. Is there a risk for Albanese that the net result is that he doesn't get many more votes from workers, grateful for his support, but risks losing significant voters from small business owners and their families? Yeah, I think I think that is a risk for him. But I don't know that it's a risk at this election. Well, I mean, it's a risk at every election, but I think it's a, a bigger risk if he wins next time with whatever those flow-on impacts are than it is in the short term here. Because I think you are you sort of you face that sense of uh, the change agent attitude at this election anyway. And he's you don't you don't think that in small business you go hang on I mean I was going to vote for these guys I don't like Morrison for a whole bunch of reasons and the coalition but uh, but hang on a minute I'm going to I've got I've only got four employees but I'm going to have to deal out more money and yeah look not an unfair point I guess I mean the more I think about it those flow and that is what the Morrison government is is banking on isn't it I mean that's one of the reasons why it's trying to delve in as hard as it is on the issue of the wage increase and the impact it'll have on business because it thinks that anyone who employs anyone even if it's a micro business with one employee, that suddenly these businesses are thinking about the impact on them directly. I would posit that those sort of voters are probably already leaning towards the coalition anyway at this election, uh, and therefore Labor are playing to what it sees as voters who are still you know, up in the air when it comes to Anthony Albanese versus the coalition, but are more likely to like the policy setting that the Labor Party are going after this time. All right, we've got just over a week to go. There's a lot of messaging to put out there. Ads, I want to talk about how both sides, how do they run home to the line? But let's take a quick break. Welcome back to uh, The Professor and the Hack, episode 119 as we go to the run to the line for this intriguing election campaign. Intriguing only if we we don't know how it's likely to end. I certainly don't feel confident that I could say how this one is going to end. But Peter, you had a, a big scoop in recent days, some leaked internal New South Wales Liberal Party polling indicating that they are in trouble. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it was done by Reachtel and it was polling that was commissioned for the party. Uh, out of New South Wales, I made the point that it wasn't part of the track poll that the feds do through Crosby Texter Research. That track polling is 20 seats that they re-poll every night. They have some seats that drop in and out of the track, and it's around about 200 votes per seat, and then they amalgamate together as well as do individual seat analysis. Now, that is very tightly held, very hard to get your hands on. I think it might have leaked in 2007, which made everyone aghast that it did within the Liberal Party and certainly within Crosby Texter. That isn't the polling I'm talking about. That polling is better for the bigger picture, but the polling that I got was New South Wales-specific, seat-specific to some of the the key, I guess you'd call them marginal seats, uh, that the Liberal Party is both looking to pick up and looking to retain. And it's a bigger sample size per individual seat, so therefore 
a smaller margin of error, in theory at least. And it shows the Liberal Party in real trouble because New South Wales, the home state of the Prime Minister, that's meant to be the state where their hopes are of picking up seats as well as not losing seats to be able to offset potential losses elsewhere around the country. This research suggests, and it's always important to remember this, polling is a snapshot in time. So it doesn't mean the polling was wrong if something different happens at the election. It means something changed, most likely, between when the polling was done and when the election day came around. But at at the point in time at which the polling was done, it showed that even a seat like Benelong, John Howard's former seat that he lost in 07 and then the Liberals promptly picked it back up in 2010 and have held it since, with the retirement of John Alexander, the 6.9% margin that he held from the last election is not only gone, but has really flicked the other way to a large extent. It's now 55-45 against the Liberal candidate running in that seat, which is a surprisingly large differential. I was anecdotally told, Hugh, since that research came out, that there's been some other research done. Uh, I haven't seen this particular research, but it It was told to me anecdotally that it showed something similar. It had the Liberal candidate trailing 47 to 53 rather than 45-55. The point being, though, that he's behind with however many days left in the campaign. And as a result of being behind, that helps us understand why both leaders, but particularly Scott Morrison, have spent as much time in Benelong as he has. Surprisingly, a large amount of time in Benelong for a seat that you might have otherwise assumed he was okay in. So that was one. Reid and Robertson, you know, show that the Liberal Party look like they might be losing both seats. Liberals have told me that they're not so sure that their track polling shows the same thing in Robertson, which is interesting. So no dispute about Reid, and we've seen the candidate get herself into a kerfuffle there. So Reid looks gone on the research I've seen as well as on the anecdotal evidence. Robertson appears to be more contested, but the polling I saw shows that it's a problem. And then a seat like Parramatta, which they were very hopeful of picking up, and a seat like Gilmore, which they're very hopeful of picking up with Andrew Constance running, the former state minister, they're behind in both, unwinnably behind in Parramatta, according to the research, close enough if they're good enough to turn it around in Gilmore, but behind nonetheless at this point. And what about those coal mining seats in the Hunter Valley, for example? Uh, you know, they, They've been seen as increasingly vulnerable for the Labor Party, long-time solid Labor Party seats, but uh, as climate change has become increasingly an issue, a lot of people there who depend on the coal mining game and energy game up there have drifted away so that the hunter, Joel Fitzgibbon's seat as he retires, became essentially a marginal. Are any of those likely to flip? Well, I haven't seen research on them, just to be clear. So the research that I got didn't include those seats around the hunter. But you would assume that there's something going on there because after the, the revelation of, of the polling that I had the other night, you know, it was the, I think it was the next day that Scott Morrison went to Shortland which is in that area. John Howard on that same day went to visit the seat of Hunter on behalf of the National Party candidate, which I found quite interesting. I can't remember the last time that John Howard has been co-opted to campaign in a National Party seat, you know, not since he was Prime Minister potentially, but I, that's, that's just my memory. And then Patterson is the third one in that area that Labor holds. It's actually the most marginal of the three, but it's the one that Liberal Party sources tell me they're the least hopeful on. So they have some hope that the National candidate or the One Nation candidate can come through in the Hunter where, as you mentioned, Joel Fitzgibbon's retiring. I'm not so sure about that. Labor is pretty confident there. Uh, Shortland is, seems to be the one where the, the Liberal candidate is really you know, going all in. The duty senator, Holly Hughes, who will be on our election night coverage on Channel 10, she's the duty senator for the Liberals in Shortland, and she's been working very hard in that area for the local Liberal candidate. So that seems to be the biggest one that they think that they can pick up. And I think that's the one 
that Pat Conroy is the local Labor MP in, and he's of the left, very pro, if you like, climate change, sort of more than most within Labor. And that's something that I think the Liberals are trying to wedge locally him on in the context of Shortland. So it's a watch and see. If the national mood is what we're hearing, it feels like it won't matter for the Liberals and that it's a forlorn hope. But it does tell us something that the Prime Minister keeps going there because he obviously wouldn't do that or he wouldn't be directed to do that by the by the people in the know with the polling if they thought that it was a waste of time. We're also seeing the Australian has uh, is pumping out its uh, YouGov poll. They say that this is uh, essentially a polling system that is different to others in that they use a whole bunch of techniques to statistical regression or something or other on numbers, and they think that it'll come up with a more accurate result. And their conclusion is, is that Labor is on track to win a majority in its own right. You know, we don't normally talk about polling, but this close to an election, we might. Do you have a gut feeling that that's potentially accurate? I like that they're doing this YouGov poll because after what happened three years ago with all the polling uh, missing the mark to a large extent, or seeming to miss the mark, it was actually in fairness to all the polling, it was showing a tightening and a narrowing and then it, it wasn't as far off and it was within the margin of error, frankly, to the result, even though the result flipped from where the polling was. I like that they're doing the YouGov poll. They've done that in the UK for a while, this style of polling, but I don't trust it. So I like it as an added piece of analysis, but I've got two profound reasons why I don't trust it, which is not to suggest that it won't end up being accurate, by the way, but I suspect that its accuracy will be happenstance rather than because its methodology fits with what happens on election day. And the the, the twofold reason is thus. Firstly, the polling gets conducted from mid-April through to mid-May. So to cover the full gambit of the 151 electorates with the 17 plus thousand people polled, They need a month to do that. So it's picking up people's feelings way out from an election. And we know from political science research that people make up their mind late. And so this is distorting that, firstly. The second issue with it is that its sample size in individual electorates is less than 200 per seat. And the way that they then try to fix that, which is what you've alluded to, Hugh, is by, in a scientific way, messing with the data. That is to say, using demographics, distributions, to try to correlate national findings with large numbers that they can allocate on that basis into the individual seats. But they depersonalize the seats. You know, candidates become irrelevant, which you know, are particularly relevant for high-profile challenging candidates or for sitting MPs that can have a personal vote. The parties have long depended on that in the way that they campaign and sandbag seat by seat. So it doesn't factor that in. So I like the innovation, but I don't trust it in any way, shape or form. And if it's ultimately accurate, I think that is a coincidence rather than a consequence of its accuracy. But it's, a, it's an interesting thing to do. Uh, and that's why I'm glad that they've done something a little bit different in the wake of the sort of standardised approach to polling that we normally see. Does that suggest that uh, the very grim polling around Josh Frydenberg and Kuyong may be overstated? Well, I think it probably is. I mean, it's, I think that certainly is the case when it comes to the YouGov poll. But even the more traditional polls that still have him behind, often they distort anyway, uh, or they have a large-ish margin of error. Look, it's going to be close for Josh Frydenberg, but my feeling is that he gets over the line rather than doesn't. Him at about $1.80 plus, uh, according to to the betting markets, I think is actually quite a good return if if you're a punter, I'm not. But he's also manning the the pre-poll booths for the full two weeks. Pre-polling is open till 8 p.m. A lot of people don't realize it runs that late. He's there from beginning of day till end of day, 
with very few exceptions, which means that he's going to see a lot of voters because anywhere between 20 and 40% of people vote at pre-poll. A lot of them are going to see him face-to-face, the treasurer of the nation, the deputy liberal leader. And then, of course, he'll be there on election day. And in between that, he's doing all the local campaigning that he's doing. Now, that's interesting on two fronts. One, I think it probably helps him, even though people have written him off. Whether it gets him there or not, we'll see. But it also has a, a negative national impact for the government. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary, Hugh. You've got an election that the coalition wants to be all about the economy. When the treasurer occasionally will make an appearance and do a media conference, like he's doing on the day that we're recording this around costings. Him and the finance minister, Simon Birmingham, are having a press conference at 9.30am on that. But by and large, he's in his local electorate, focused on local issues, trying to win votes to save his political career, rather than doing what he would otherwise do, touring the country, providing an alternative voice on the economy to the prime minister, an alternative face to the prime minister when we know that the PM is personally unpopular, but the Treasurer not so much. So that, in the wash-up, if this is a super close election and Josh Frydenberg hangs on and becomes opposition leader even, it may well be an interesting situation where he has saved himself by staying so local. But, and I don't say this as a criticism because obviously you have to be in Parliament to have a political career, but potentially in saving himself, if it's a tight election on the economy with an unpopular Prime Minister and he hasn't been out on the national campaign, he might have saved himself at the expense of the government. In which case, Labour will give a great vote of thanks to Monique Ryan, Dr. Monique Ryan, who's, who's kept him nailed down in that particular skirmish. There's, uh, <laughs> there's no true. doubt about that. Boy, she's a good candidate on paper, isn't she, Hugh? I mean, that's the other thing that some of his personalising of this have done. I, I, I knew that she was a doctor running against him, but I only, um, and I probably should have done it earlier, but I only decided to look into a little bit more detail about her in the wake of his um, you know, outing of her mother-in-law's comments about her. You know, head of neurology at the Melbourne Children's Hospital, She's not exactly just sitting around stitching up small wounds, which is not to take away from normal GPs. Wow, it's, she's a full-on career senior bureaucrat and senior physician. Yeah, and it's interesting that Dave Sharma had a crack at these teal independents having, quote, a middle-aged frolic. Oh, yeah, that was bad. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, mate, I, this is not a woman who's given to frolics, I don't think. <laughs> Obviously, his target was mainly Allegra Spender, who's the independent standing against him. But even then, I mean, I, and I, look, I, I think Dave Sharma would be a loss to the parliament, you know, you know, he's he's somebody who went to a public school, got a hundred in his HSC, became a ambassador to a country, and has a lot to offer, right? But I think she does too. I mean, Alika Spender is not some, you know, and, and this is not me saying this. This is me extrapolating from his commentary. Some middle-aged woman looking for something to do—that is deeply offensive. And will offend voters there too. Oh, totally. Of course it would. And you saw on Insiders, I'm sure, which it was an unusual event where you have an independent candidate turning up and getting that platform in, in an election campaign. And she performed as well as or better than anyone in the normal run of, of Mill. Absolutely. And, and she, you know, she, I mean, she, not only was she the head girl of her school and she got 99.95 in her HSC, it's not a number that you would normally associate with not being the highest performer uh, of the candidates taking on a seat. You know, she happens to be up against a bloke who got 100. But you know, 99.95 could have done anything at university. I think she studied law, but either way, she became a consultant at McKinsey. And I can tell you this, whatever you think of consultants, they'll borrow your watch and tell you what time it is. But I tell you what, getting into McKinsey is about as hard a thing that you can do as somebody who's a new graduate from university as anything. And she got in. And then ultimately... The fact that she's gone and had a family, I don't think should count against her. 
she's run the family business. You know, the, the business side of it, her sister being the, the, the designer who's taken after mum on that front. Uh, so, you know, she, she's not some person who's looking for something to do in life. And that was an, an unfortunate characterization by Dave Sharma, which, as you say, will only upset voters because, you know, it's, it's, it's not the kind of thing that, that people want to reflect about themselves, much less about somebody who doesn't deserve it. Very broadly, we don't have a lot of time left. Looking at the debates, I thought one of the things about Scott Morrison is the thing that makes him aggravating as a prime minister, his very slickness, his very capacity to waffle off any, any hook, uh, to not answer a question, to deflect, to blame others, etc. Uh, when you get that day after day after day when he's prime minister, it builds up this kind of sense that he's a, essentially someone who doesn't take responsibility for his own stuff-ups. And yet that slickness becomes an advantage in things like those leader debates. He has appeared to me slicker, sharper, more across the detail than Anthony Albanese in both of those debates, the major debates. And Albanese had on a number of occasions seemed slightly off balance, stammered a bit, set off on one argument and then kind of pivoted halfway through it in a kind of a non-sequential rhetorical way onto another area to try to land his points. He just didn't look as as clever, I suppose, in managing those things. And yet, in general, the overall verdict of people seemed to be that Albanese's had the better of both of them. I'm wondering if Morrison campaigns slickly and fluently, but seems at times to be too clever by half as a prime minister. And Albanese, if you accept my fundamental premise, seems a bit stumbly and uncertain. What does that tell us about what he might be as a prime minister? That he'd he'd be more thoughtful, that he's not so slick, that he works his way through things, or something the opposite? What kind of a prime minister is Albanese going to be? Well, it's it's a great question. It could be either, couldn't it? I mean, the sort of the more stumbling approach could be reflective of somebody who is reflective and therefore isn't just about the spin and the superficiality of appearing eloquent and quick-witted. But it could also be uh, somebody who ultimately sags in the job and isn't up to it. Uh, I, look, I, I, I think most people grow into these jobs. And I think, you know, whoever becomes prime minister by definition isn't up to the job yet because they haven't done it yet. It's one of those real leap jobs, isn't it? I think it's, it's like a very hyped up version of becoming a CEO when you've never been one before. All of a sudden, you know, you have all this responsibility lumped on you and it, it's, nothing prepares you for it. Years as a minister, which Albanese has as leader of the House and a cabinet minister, doesn't prepare you for it. Years as a treasurer, I don't think, prepares you for it, nor would years as a deputy prime minister, depending on what that means. It's different between parties and factions. But I think it is so unique in that sense, you know, the same way the President of the United States is as well. So you never really know until somebody gets there how they're going to go in it. But, you know, I, I do think that, well, and this is a line that Anthony Albanese uses. He is more experienced than any former Labor Prime Minister when they took the job, if he gets the job. That, that doesn't necessarily count for much because of what I just said. <laughs> you just don't know until somebody takes the job whether they're up to it or not. There's been a lot of Prime Ministers through the years who have both exceeded and underwhelmed when they've taken the job. And which one Albanese falls into is, is genuinely hard to know. I will say this very quickly, though, Hugh. I think one of the reasons that he's been a bit slow-witted and stumbly on the campaign trail is because Albanese, the firebrand, which he was for so many years in Parliament, is something that could have put voters off at this election. And maybe the Liberal Party will still succeed in costing him the prime ministership by reminding people about that. But his aim 
And one of the reasons I think he's been a bit ponderous is to nullify that. He can't be his natural self, Albanese, the firebrand who likes fighting Tories, because that alienates the centre voters. So he, I think, has been a little bit stumbly because he's thinking before he speaks and has in the back of his mind the memory that he has to play to the centre. And I guess to some extent that means that even though he's stumbled, maybe he has been spinning just as much as Scott Morrison, but it's a different type of spin. Uh, It's a less slick type of political spin. Well, we don't know what policies are going to be announced over the coming days. There's some money in the in the uh, kitty in the budget in those uh, decisions made but not yet announced. We think on carbon emissions, so I think there could be something yet to see. And I think there may be something from the Australian Space Program, an announcement from the government coming. That would seem to be the clue in the budget papers. As long as we're not colonising Mars, that'll be interesting. That's right. Or in a race with China to get there, I suppose. <laughs> Peter, a busy few days. We'll do two professors in the hack next week. We hope to get one out on Monday, and we look forward to that. Good to talk to you. Talk to you then. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.